We're continuing our look at this letter that Peter wrote, and I, I tend to keep bringing this up, but I'll bring it up again, that Peter wrote this letter later in his life, in his life with Jesus, in his life in ministry, after many years of walking with Jesus, both in person and after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And he's writing to people that might be young or old in age, but are relatively young in the faith. And uh, we've been at this for a few weeks now. Uh, we're picking up right here in the be- middle of chapter two, and, uh, and we're starting to get into the meat of where he starts applying what faith will look like in our life. And he's going to start touching on some pretty sensitive subjects. And, uh, and so I think it's, and, and this morning, he's going to talk about how we are to be a people who give respect. And at times giving respect regardless of whether respect is really due. And that can be hard for us. And so I think it's important before we get into this that we name, we step back and name a few of the things that Peter has already said about who we are in Jesus Christ. He tells you that you, those who belong to Jesus, are born again to a living hope. That's true about you. And he says, to you belongs an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's not going anywhere. Nothing can take that away from you. You are the recipients of God's promises. You were once no people, but now you are God's people. That is who you are. And I don't think there is a word that sums this all up better than the first word we're going to read in the text because he's going to call you beloved. You are beloved. You are God's beloved. It's the basic reality that covers your entire existence is that God looks at you with extreme affection. And so as God's people who are loved, we are free to love. And one of the ways this love takes shape in our lives is that we give respect freely with generosity. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read verses 11 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continues entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like lost sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, as we gather here and we hear from your word, I pray that you would use it. Uh, for our benefit, for your glory, that our lives would be more and more conformed to your will. So challenge us where you will, soften us, encourage our hearts with the truth of the gospel, convict us as your people, and lead us along the way of love that you call us to. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, as we lean into this passage, that you would help me, uh, that you would help me to speak in complete fidelity to your word, to love these friends, and to honor you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it still uh, stuns me that uh, this article I'm about to talk about was actually written seven years ago. Uh, But every now and then, some of you might be able to identify this, every now and then you come across an article and it just kind of grabs your conscience and it won't let it go. Uh, that's what this one did for me. David Brooks wrote an article. He's op-ed writer for the New York Times. You can look it up. The title is called The Shame Culture. Uh, and there he writes with a particular interest, or really a particular concern, for how the role of shame has replaced the role of guilt in our lives and in our world. Now, parsing out guilt and shame might uh, sound like kind of an exercise in academic nuance, but I really don't think it is. Because what we're talking about when we talk about these things is the formation of a moral compass and our ability to discern right from wrong. And, and many of you have probably heard one of, the, one of the old apologetic arguments. I know C.S. Lewis makes it. I don't know if he stole it from somebody else. That, uh, that we were all born with uh, a moral compass, an internal guide that tells us the difference between right and wrong. That's a universal truth for all of us. And the other universal truth is that we all know that we've broken it. And, uh, and so we stand guilty before the Lord. And Jesus attends to our guilt and his atoning sacrifice is the only thing that justifies us or removes our guilt from us as we stand before the Lord. That's a, the role of guilt actually uh, has an important role in our understanding of the faith and that it's attended to by Jesus and Jesus only. Okay. And the difference is, as Mr. Brooks has put it, is that uh, if we think about the role of guilt and as in terms of an internal moral compass, an internal ability to discern right from wrong, that, uh, that shame replaces guilt as our moral compass, and then what people think about you 
or what the crowd thinks about you is what plays a primary role. That we can be adrift, chasing, chasing the teachings of, of the world. And social inclusion and social exclusion can be what determines for us what's right And what's wrong? And I would just say that uh, I think you see this in play in our world in a number of ways right now. I don't think it's at all new. But the ways that we shame people that we disagree with. Or how polarized we can be. Or how hard it is to simply have a a hard conversation with people. Or you see it in, in ways that friendships can be disposable. I would say that cancel culture... And the way is a, is a giving and receiving of shame. I think it's just a version of shame culture. And, and I think it, that creates a lot of pressure for the Christian. Because we are different. And we're called to be a light in the world. And we hold beliefs of faith that might not be understood. And the pressure to belong, the pressure we feel to please, might lead to a pressure to hide who we are. I want to ask you, do you feel this pressure? I will confess to you as a pastor, pastors are not exempt from this pressure. I know I feel that pressure. And I'm talking about this because I think that this makes the giving and receiving of respect and honor very difficult. I would even say it makes it fundamentally transactional. That we can be so consumed with accumulating for ourselves respect and very selective at where we give it. That's a transactional way of understanding the giving and receiving of respect. You have to give respect to to get respect. That's transactional. Respect is given where where respect is earned. That's That's a fundamentally transactional way of understanding respect. And that's why what Peter says in this passage might just be so revolutionary to us. Because what he tells us is that we are to be a people who are generous in the giving of respect with little regard to what we're receiving. Who do we do it for? Why? And where do we get it from? Who do we give our respect to? Why do we do it? And where do we get it from? That's what we'll talk about. First, who do we give it to? When you look at this text, uh, you see that Peter is talking specifically about how we respect the authorities in our life. He is locking in on places where it already is very hard (laughs) for us to give respect, both to those who are in authority, governmental authority over us, and those at work. The, The workplace authorities is what he's naming Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him. And then again in verse 18, he he addresses servants. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect. Now that's, of course, that's a hard teaching, I think. Um, But perhaps the call... For servants to give respect to their master would have been even harder because really what he's doing is he's asking them to give respect to the unrespectable. Unrespectable is not a word, but it's a technical term I'm using, and I think it should be a word because I think that's what Peter is talking about here. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and just, but also to the unjust. Now, it's very likely that when Peter uses the word for servants in this passage, he's really talking about slaves. It was a widespread practice in this time. The early church was full of slaves. The gospel spread rapidly amongst people who were relatively powerless to shape the contours of their life. And, uh, and I, I, I mean, I have to say a word about this, but um, I know that there are ways that we can discern the difference between the practice of slavery we see in the Bible and the practice of slavery that we see, uh, that, we, that we are familiar with in our own country's history. And there are differences you can make between the two, but I don't know that it's wise to think of it as any less terrible. Because, because every attempt to enslave another person is really to seek to rob them of their dignity. And remember what we're talking about here, dignity and honor is at the heart of this passage. It's really an attempt to rob somebody of the divinely endowed image of God that's given to them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will say, Slaves, if you can at all change the circumstances of your life, you absolutely should. But what's telling to me is that the gospel spread most rapidly amongst people that had little power to shape the contours of their life. And I think that's really what we're talking about here in this passage, is how do we, as those with little power or influence, treat those who do, regardless of how we're to be treated, we're to honor them or to give respect. That's the call of this passage, and it's really unqualified. And if this is a hard instruction for us to hear, think about how this would have been heard in Peter's day. I've mentioned before that Nero was the Roman ruler at that time. He was famous for unjust persecution of Christians. Peter would end up being martyred under Nero's rule. And these Christians, in particular, were detested for their faith. It is well documented just how suspicious, powerful people were of this community of powerless Christians and the harmful treatment they suffered because of it. Can you imagine how the reading of this text might have gone over in that church? That's how this affected them. But my question for you is, how does this call... To give respect freely, even when it's undeserved, how does that affect you? I bet you have some people in mind. Could be political figures, people in office, could be a neighbor, could be a boss at work. I bet you have somebody in mind. What is it going to look like for you to give respect to those people with your words and your actions, when they're around and when they're not around, regardless of how they treat you. We have to remember that God does give us tools for this. That we are divinely endowed with the Holy Spirit. As those who belong to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit that leads us and shapes us and strengthens us, gives us courage and even the willingness to suffer. 
And he also gives us the gift of prayer. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. And and we have the gift of prayer to, to pray for ourselves in these situations, to pray for each other who might be laboring in those situations, and even to pray for those who persecute us. The Bible is replete with encouragements to pray for those who persecute us. And usually when we're talking about someone who is ruling or treating people unjustly, usually we are talking about something going on in them that is beyond our ability to fix. And so it is only right that we would appeal to the Holy Spirit to work in those situations. But I also think it's fair to ask the question, as hard as this call might be, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Peter offers several reasons in this text, but I just want to name two. And both of them have to do with our identity as those who belong to Jesus Christ. First, it silences ignorance. It silences ignorance about who we are as God's people. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We're different. I already mentioned that. And that one, of that, one of the things that that means is that Christians can be very strange to those who don't understand who we are and what we believe. Uh, and so there can be a lot of sub- suspicion about who we are and what we're up to. Uh, sometimes our, um, our worst failures end up on the news. and are co- like There can be a lot of misunderstanding about who we are. And so one of the natural outcomes of that is that there would simply be ignorance about who we are and what we believe. And so one of the ways that we attend kindly to a wondering world is that we submit graciously to our authorities. We honor our authorities. We pray for them. uh, We pay our taxes like everybody else does. We're not people that demand our rights, but we actually submit to the government that's given to us because God put it in place that we should. And, And our goodness, I'll say this, our goodness amongst our neighbors might be one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel. That seeing the way that we serve and we serve and we serve might be one of the ways that we help people understand who Jesus is. So it silences ignorance about who we are, but it also exercises our freedom. And we, 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 that has to grab us. He's talking to servants or slaves, and he's calling them free people. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Remember what I told you about what has been said about you already in Jesus. You are cherished. You are dignified. You are beloved sons and daughters, saints and priests in the world. That is unimpeachably true. Nothing, nothing can take that away from you. And so we are free. To submit whether or not we agree. And we know that no matter how unjustly we might be treated, nothing can touch who we are in Jesus Christ. Nothing can take that away from you. And there is a place reserved for you in your king's presence that no unjust treatment can take away from you. This is why Peter begins talking about our reward in verse 19. He says, it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows 
while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That word gracious, if you look in verse 20, you see the word credit. Those two, those two words are actually synonymous with each other. He's saying that unearned grace has been credited to your account. Unearned grace has been given to you. So you are now free, free to give grace even in places where it's not due. And I'll just say this. Only a person who's truly free is able to give grace in hard places. Only a person who really understands the freedom that they have in Jesus is able to offer love to those who harm us. Why is this important? Because when we're treated unjustly, what's really under attack? It's our freedom. We feel our freedom under attack. And we feel our dignity under attack. And we feel our honor is under attack. And so the instinct that we have is to fight back. To regain those things that are really, really important to us. But you know what I would call that? I would call that actually the opposite of freedom. That we can become so taken up with demanding and fighting for our freedom and forget that there's a greater freedom that's already been promised to us. And we got to remember that this is Peter that we're talking about here. This is the guy that brought a sword into the Garden of Gethsemane. That when Jesus, was being, Jesus and his band of disciples were being unjustly uh, confronted and Jesus was being unjustly taken away, Peter's the one who drew his sword to fight. And what did, Peter say, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Peter, Peter, put the sword down. Shall I not drink the cup that has been given to me? What Peter didn't understand in that moment, but he seems to understand now, is that when he was ready to fight for his freedom and the freedom of his friends, Jesus was actually using his freedom to serve. And that's exactly what Peter is calling us to. When I was looking through the sermon last week, I actually counted up the number of times I wrote down, boy, this is a hard teaching. And I think it was at six or seven, and I might already be there. And maybe it's just because it's hard for me. This one's been operating me and challenging on me in, in various ways. But he gives us the call. He gives us the reasons for it. But it's a good question to ask, where are we going to get this kind of strength from? Where, where are we going to get this kind of grace that's given to us? And, and that's why we can't miss that starting in verse 21, Peter lays out to us yet again the wonderful honor, dignity, and respect that we have been given by Jesus. And he says that in Jesus we have an example that's given to us For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. We do this by remembering what Christ has done. He is our example and what Christ Christ has done for us and what Christ has done to us. What did Jesus do for you? Well, this reminds us that he suffered for us. Verse 22, even though he committed no sin, 
No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Listen, when you look at Jesus' story, you see it all through his life, but you see it especially uh, in the process from when he uh, was taken away in the garden all the way until he was put on the cross. You see unjust treat story of unjust treatment after unjust treatment after unjust treatment. You see it uh, in the soldiers that come after him. You see it when he stands before Pilate. You see it when he stands before the, the high priest. Every time he's given false, edu- uh, uh, false, uh, false accusations, lies are being spread about who he is, physically he's beaten. And not once did he offer a word of disrespect. He suffered in these ways, suffering unjustly. And every moment of this suffering, Peter tells us, was an act of entrusting himself to a righteous judge. I think that's really important that he mentions. Entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. If you are... If you are suffering unjust treatment right now, um, you need to know. One of the things you need to know is that judgment is coming. That's a promise given to us. That there is a righteous judge who is coming in judgment. And that if you are suffering in this way, I want you to know that God sees you. And that his judgment is coming and his desire for justice even outpaces our own. And when we look at Jesus, we see him suffering unjustly so that we can be counted among the righteous. Listen, there is, not, there is nothing like looking at the one who served us in the most costly way possible. And yet somehow, every moment of it was worth it to him. He willingly inserted himself in that place. You know why? Because you were worth it to him. That's what he did for you. What did he do to you? Verse 24. This is glorious. By his wounds, you have been healed. There is no wound you carry right now that won't be healed. There is no injustice that won't be made right. He takes the very things that hurt the most and heals them by his wounds. That's what Christ has done to you. And this is certainly true of physical wounds. I'm sure that Peter had physical wounds in mind. But some of the deepest wounds we bear are internal. Are they not? They're they're, they're places of shame that we feel. Because you know what guilt does to you is it tells you that what you do is right or wrong, but what shame does to you, and it's one of the reasons it's so powerful, is it tells you that you are bad. And the gospel is given to you not just to deal with your guilt before God, but also to deal with your shame. In fact, he takes our greatest shames and transforms it into a blessing. You know who understood that? Mary understood that. Jesus' mom understood that. The same Mary was a part of a shame culture, probably was putting it mildly. And think of all the things that she went through. Uh, Pregnant as a young woman, outside of wedlock, engaged, but when she was engaged to a good man, 
I, I just couldn't imagine. What will people think? Had to be something that crossed her mind often. But if that bothered Mary, you don't get a whiff of that in the scriptures. An angel comes to Joseph and says, don't divorce her quietly. God is at work. So she's being taken care of by God. And in Luke 1, we see Mary writes a song. And she sings this. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Even when Jesus was in the womb, He was taking out shame and making it the place of her deepest blessing. And in that moment, it didn't matter what the world thought of her. She wasn't beholden to that anymore. She was free because she knew she was loved by God. And I know some of us here are going through things that are hard to understand. And I'm with you. Others are with you. You don't have to be alone in that. But my prayer for you is that in some way our hearts will become a little more like Mary's and how she's affected by God, safely hidden in God's will and entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Once we were straying like lost sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We always belong. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O giver of peace, give us peace. You hold our lives in your hands and you look at us as your beloved. Deal with us in the deepest places and help us to follow your call as you give it to us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.